we will open now the floor to questions. Any male member that wishes to ask a question, please raise your hand and, and Josiah will bring you the microphone. We'll ask that you please stand uh, to ask your question for the benefit of the videoing that's being done. So uh, as we have hands, Austin. Thank you, brother. That was, uh, that was a fantastic presentation and um, um, very informative. Um, I know this is slightly off as off topic as far as the communion is concerned, but it does apply to to wine, which is of course when Jesus turned water into wine in John chapter two. Now, um, from what I understand, the New American Standard, instead of using the term new wine, it says good wine, and I know there's some that use that as an argument to say uh, as as far as the uh, the quality. Um, uh, of that, it was it was better, and still insist that it was intoxicating. The the passage mm. though that you used in Jeremiah, uh, I looked it up in the New American Standard, and it says new wine. So, um, does new wine? My question is, does that always refer to non-intoxicating wine? Historically speaking, um, and should that passage there in John chapter two? What's the better translation? Would it be new wine or good wine? I don't know from the Greek standpoint. Mm -hmm. I don't know from the Greek standpoint either, uh, but one of the things that I found very interesting in um, my preliminary studies of this issue is that even among the pagans, around the Romans especially, those are the best documents, of course, that we have, um, even among them, they found uh, non-intoxicating and fresh grape juice to be just as uh, much of a delicacy as even the best of intoxicating wine, it seems. The, as I mentioned in the beginning of this presentation, it looks as though even kings and nobles would sometimes prefer the uh, fresh grape juice as it was often sweeter because in the process of fermentation, the sugars in the drink are turned into alcohol and so it becomes less sweet and more alcoholic. And so sometimes even the kings and nobles themselves, the pagans who had no questions or no qualms about becoming intoxicated, would prefer the good wine sometimes, which is what they called it, but by that they meant uh, fresh grape juice. And so I'm not particularly sure. I've struggled over this passage in John 2 quite a bit. I'm not exactly sure uh, what the better translation would be. I think it's in verse 10, the one you're referring to. Um, yeah, it's verse 10, verse 10 and 11. I'm not sure exactly of the, of the Greek word behind it. I don't know exactly from the context which way it should be translated. But I do think that uh, it's not necessary that we see wine or good wine in the Bible as referring to intoxicating drink. It can be referred to even in historical sources besides the Bible as a non-intoxicating drink. But thank you for the question. Alan Bonifay. Just to comment on that question, uh, it seems highly unlikely to put it mildly, that Jesus would make 120 gallons of something you could get drunk on and then condemn you for getting drunk. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that was fermented wine on that occasion. Mm -hmm. And also, is it, I think it's true that, from what I've read, that when people do consume a lot of fermented alcohol, they lose the ability to distinguish taste. Mm -hmm. But the governor of the feast could tell that this was the best wine. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he was not drunk. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, a comment question or two, and then a real question. I don't want everybody to faint, but I'm going to ask a real question here. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I'm gonna lean against the wall here. <laughs> so the term fruit of the vine, there are 11 Hebrew words translated wine. There are two mm -hmm. Greek words translated wine and those words have 30 cognates in the scriptures. Fruit of the vine is not any of those. And the only drink element that the, wine, the vine produces, that's what the word fruit means, produce mm -hmm. of the vine, is grape juice. Mm -hmm. no, no grape produces wine. People mm -hmm. have to take what grapes produce and do things to it to produce mm -hmm. wine. Uh, or leave it over time and let nature do it. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't come from the grape. Mm -hmm. So fruit of the vine is a term that Jesus used here on purpose, as you indicated. Mm -hmm. uh, the wine Jesus drank on the cross, the strong wine, mm -hmm. is oxos, which is, that's vinegar. It's kind of gone past the state of mm -hmm. ordinary fermented wine. Mm -hmm. Yes? Yes, I think that's correct. Okay. Okay, so my question uh, kind of relates to number four, when no grape juice is available. Uh, in the Philippines, we had a problem for many years because you couldn't get grape juice there. You can now, it's not a problem. But uh, Jerry's recommendation, Jerry Cutter, and I think this was valid, but I wondered what you thought. You could get raisins there. And so people took raisins and rehydrated them in water and then squeezed them again. And this was used for the fruit of the vine of the Lord's Supper. Is something like that acceptable? Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of that before. But um, from a scientific standpoint, I would say that uh, when raisins are dehydrated, of course, the word itself just means to take the water out of the raisin. So if you're putting the water back into the raisin, I don't see a problem with that, really. Um, the only solution I've heard of congregations in Africa, the ones that I've heard of, that were unable to find grape juice in order to use for the Lord's Supper. Um, and their solution was just simply to pray to God that they would be sent grape juice in some vessel that they could use. That was the best thing they could do. And of course, uh, with the circumstances permitting, I don't know what else they could really do. I don't know if raisins were available to them or not. But that's an interesting comment. I've never heard of that before. That means the missionary is supposed to buy grape juice in mm -hmm. South Africa and bring it up there. Uh, which is what we have done. Well, when you do that with raisins, it doesn't look all that attractive, and it tastes worse. Mm -hmm. But... In the scriptures, it's not talking about what it looks like or what it tastes like. Mm -hmm. And I think that worked. Also, Benny and I did some work about this several years ago. And in World War II, uh, the American government sent, as part of uh, the rations for troops, freeze-dried grape juice, which was kind of in a crystallized form. and. Uh, and you could mix water with it, and it, it didn't taste like Welch's, but it was close. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, of course, is a production issue question mm -hmm. more than anything else. But there are things that you can do mm -hmm. if you don't have grape juice. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I think you did a great job, Caleb. I appreciate it very much. And uh, that's all. 
David Griffin. I appreciate it, Caleb. It was a great job. Thank you. Um, I'm <clears throat> trying to reach back in my memory here for about 30 years now, so I may get this not exactly right, but and my question is kind of a two-part question. Uh, well, I guess it doesn't have to be. Uh, back in the early 90s, late 80s, I was working with a church in central Missouri, and uh, in that area, it was kind of in the way up the creek in the backwoods of Missouri, so I don't know how technical this question is, but, and again, if I remember it correctly, there, uh, there were some wine churches up in there, two or three of them, and they, uh, one of their favorite arguments, and maybe this is a common argument, I don't know, but I, I don't know if it is or not, but they would say, well, in order for it to be without yeast, it had to be alcoholic. And so I'm just going to leave that question in that form and let you address that. Is okay. that okay? What do you think about that? Um, I think I understand what the, what they're getting at, at least from a scientific perspective. As I said, uh, the moment grape juice is extracted from the grape itself, uh, the sugars in the uh, juice itself begin begin to uh, ferment into alcohol. Um, and so there is, of course, even in Welch's grape juice, there will be trace amounts of alcohol, but it's not enough to get a person intoxicated. You could drink as much Welch's as you, as you wanted to, and you would never get drunk. Uh, you'd just be going to the bathroom an awful lot. But um, if you leave Welch's out long enough, then eventually you will be able to get drunk off that. So uh, the yeast, if I'm understanding correctly, the yeast would speed up that process. The whole purpose of yeast in anything whether it be you can use it in, to make beer or to make wine or to all sorts of other uh, things that are popular these days, is you would place the yeast or some form of yeast into a drink. It would, uh, their yeast is just basically little microorganisms that would eat the alcohols and spit out the other end, uh, or eat the sugars rather and spit out the other end, alcohols, ethanol in particular, which of course is the main uh, intoxicating ingredient in most uh, intoxicating drinks today. And so I don't uh, see that as a particularly good argument because nowadays especially we have ways to preserve that. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, even in Welch's grape juice today, and most major brands of grape juice, not singling them out, uh, they will add certain uh, preservatives, certain chemicals. It's usually just a small amount, maybe even just a pinch is all, in order to make sure that it never becomes fermented, even for years on end. So, um, but I, I've never heard that before, and so I appreciate the question. Brother, what is your name? Joe, please. Uh, you did a great and awesome job. Uh, of course, then on, on various folks talking about there's no grape juice. You said we keep saying the term fruit of the vine. There are all kinds of fruits of the vine, and grapes are not just the only fruit of the vine. So, um, like, you ever heard of muscadines, scuffy dimes? I don't mm -hmm. know if you know that about that in that part of the country. And uh, watermelons and all kind of things they grow on the vine. All limb can be used to produce alcoholic beverages, just like grape juice. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if Jesus was using the term that other parts of the world they didn't have grapes, but they had mm -hmm. other things that grew on the fruit of the vine. Well, what what you comment on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously there's there's ways you can make intoxicating drink even from apple juice. You'll see like hard apple cider, for example, which is just essentially the same process being attempted on uh, apple juice instead of grape juice. So obviously there are uh, things like that where you can uh, make intoxicating drink even from other juices. And there are even other vines which grow different fruits. 
But in the times, if I'm understanding correctly historically, the times were such that they were predominantly growing grapes in the Mediterranean area. And so they, uh, at least people in those days, would have understood fruit of the vine to mean grape juice in particular. And if uh, a, people, a person lived in a foreign land and they would have read the Bible and said that they needed to use fruit of the vine, then I would argue they should use the same principles of interpretation that we do and try to read the Bible in its original context. Alan Bonifay. Well, first of all, in the, in the Bible, the vine is the grapevine. There's no question about that. It's not some other kind of vine. Tomato juice mm -hmm. is not okay, so mm -hmm. on. Uh, I forgot a moment ago I wanted to comment. You know, you talked about one of the ways of preservation in the first century was to boil the grape juice down to mm -hmm. a, uh, where, it, where it has less water in it. Mm -hmm and therefore fermentation is much slowed down and mm -hmm. then they add water back in. Mm -hmm. uh, that is exactly, or essentially, I should say, the same process Welch's uses today mm -hmm. with much more quality control and so mm -hmm. on. But they, they reduce the water content of the grape juice that comes in in the trucks mm -hmm. and then they reconstitute it with water mm -hmm. and so that was a practice used in the first century. It's just done with machinery and mm. exactitude now. Mm. And on a practical note, uh, people need to be careful when they're shopping because Welch's is now mixing grape juice with all kinds of other uh, fruit products. Mm. And there have been time, and the bottles often look exactly the same. So someone reaches up on the shelf not paying attention and gets something and they've got grape juice and pomegranate juice mixed mm. together. That's not acceptable. People need to be careful. And it has happened accidentally in a place or, or two and we need to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ron Corder. I'm standing, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> My question. Uh, it relates to preservation. The two accounts, as I remember in the Gospels, said put new wine into new containers. Mm -hmm. And I think the other passage said they're both preserved. Mm -hmm. So would the inference be from this, I'm going to use your terminology, mm -hmm. the inference from that would be that that shows biblically they preserved the grape juice and it was non-intoxicating mm -hmm. or non-fermented. Mm -hmm. Would that be an inference proper from those verses? I think so, I think so. And one of the passages, or one of the points that I did not make from that passage, but I'm glad you mentioned it, is that um, there is some evidence that sealing up grape juice even after it has been uh, exposed to the air, does in fact slow down the process. As I said, the leavening agents in the air do leaven the grape juice and therefore turn it into intoxicating wine over time. But if you limit the exposure it has to the air, then of course it would slow down the process some, just not exponentially as it would to be refrigerated, for example. It just seems biblically that definitely shows mm -hmm. the process agree. would be non-intoxicating. On the other hand, I'm not sure about this, but I think if it's fermented, eventually the pressure would be so great that no matter what vessel you could put in it, possibly, it would explode. Mm -hmm. In Africa, 
I had about 20 some cartons of grape juice and they were bottled and corked. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went out into the little shed where I kept it one day and I had the fragrant smell of grape juice all about me. And so I opened up a case or two and it had been poorly done. The bottles were broke and mm -hmm. the corks were wherever they were. Mm -hmm. Who knows where corks go anyway. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Melvin Blaylock. Appreciate your, pres <clears throat> your presentation very much. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things we've often said over the years, at least I have occasionally said this, I've heard others use this argument, of course there could be no leavening in the, during the Passover in, the, in their houses. Now, would you say that wine is leavened, it goes through the leavening process, and so would it be a, a good argument to say that they could not have had wine in the Lord's Supper because it would involve leavening, is that a correct assessment or not? I think that uh, as, I've, as I've tried to show as best I can, it doesn't take necessarily a leavening agent to be added to the grape juice in order to leaven it. Uh, there's leavening agents even in the air. And so obviously in the Old Testament, what they were primarily meaning is that there was to be no yeast in the household. That was what they were primarily meaning. Now there was some evidence in those times that uh, the Romans in particular would use yeast to speed up the fermentation process, and I think that would have been excluded from the Jewish observance of the Passover, most likely. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all alcohol was purged of the grape juice miraculously, therefore, just because they didn't use yeast. There was oftentimes trace amounts, as I said earlier. In other words, uh, yeast is not something necessarily, I mean, just automatically develops in the process of time in the grape juice? Mm -hmm. okay. Okay. Noah Howard. Caleb, I appreciate your background and the scientific angle you bring to this presentation. The, and I appreciated you, the, the terms that you put it in, fermented and unfermented versus intoxicating or non-intoxicating. I think that's a very helpful way of looking at it. The question of fermentation and the you know, percentages and amounts has always seemed kind of strange to me, it's like that old question, how many grains of sand do you need till you have a beach? And you can't necessarily count them. People in the ancient times certainly could not have measured that. But you can tell very easily when you have a beach or not, and you can tell easily when you have something intoxicating or not. But one thing I think that gets lost in the, the questions about grape juice and the ancient methods of preservation. Something that shocked me in my own research was the kind of intoxicating wine that they had available to them. And it's really quite amazing. We don't think about how much the modern process and inventions have changed how wine, intoxicating wine, is made to the point where the kind of wine that was available to the ancients at its strongest was even a third or perhaps half the strength of any wine you can buy regularly on the shelf at, at Trader Joe's. You know. mm -hmm. Do you have any comments on the difference between ancient wine and modern intoxicating wine? I think that's a good observation. That is true. Um, these days, of course, you've, I'm sure, heard, if not seen on television or movies or something along those lines, 
um, that there's different levels of wine. There's wine tasting clubs. You can go and try different kinds, ones that have been aged for years and years, ones that have been aged for a couple days and uh, try different uh, variations of it. In those days, they didn't have that sort of thing. Uh, oftentimes, they wanted to drink the wine. If they were going to be intoxicated, they wanted to drink the wine as soon as possible. If it was intoxicating, it was intoxicating. That's all that they cared about. And so oftentimes, it was not nearly as uh, strong in terms of its alcohol percentages as many of the wines that we have today. Brother Art Lynch. Thank you, Caleb. I thought that was an outstanding presentation. One thing I wanted to get well, I actually mentioned two things. One, in, in your research, and I didn't hear you mention it, you may have, but um, you, you talked about them digging the holes in order to preserve uh, the fruit of the vine or the produce of the grape uh, in, in some settings. Did you come across any research that showed uh, preserving it like in the bodies of water, like in the river or uh, in containers that mm -hmm. they put in there also. Mm -hmm. I did. I did okay. find some that they would okay. uh, place those larger barrels or even smaller jars of grape juice or fermented wine, either one, uh, in a cold body of water for a little while to uh, refrigerate it. In essence, it may not be as strong as we would think of refrigeration today, but it would cool it down significantly. Okay. And one of the other things, I know you, you emphasized talking about alcoholic versus non-alcoholic instead of fermented mm -hmm. but yet when you when you actually go and look at low nida and all the different defining agencies they all are entities they all use that fermented unfermented but they're mm -hmm. distinguish uh, distinguishing terms and it seemed to be the newly pressed grape mm -hmm. new wine those kind of terms to me, I guess the, the real question is that pertains to the communion that comes to my mind is Acts 20 and 7, we're gathering on the first day of the week every week. The problems of shortages I can see, but what are we trying to preserve it so long for when we are going to need it every seven days? Mm. Or if it's newly pressed, and this is kind of the historic question. If it was newly pressed from the grape and they were meeting every week, wouldn't they newly press it sometime in the week before to yeah. have it available? Yeah, there was, of course, um, <clears throat> harvest seasons when they would have more grapes readily available to them. There might be some seasons of the year where there was less grapes available to them. So they might prepare slightly by building up a small stockhold of uh, containers of grape juice or fruit of the vine, whichever term you prefer, uh, in order to have enough when uh, shorter seasons came. Yeah, I just was trying to figure out why mm -hmm. they would, well, I know, I know in America we like to store up mm -hmm. and build, fill the pantries and those kind of things, but mm -hmm. I, I didn't really see that as the, the focus mm -hmm. that would be the thinking behind the communion mm -hmm. and observing the Lord's Supper mm -hmm. of the early church. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. that's why I David Griffin. Uh, yeah, Caleb, I'm kind of impressed of, the, uh, of your uh, academic course, uh, first chemistry and then Roman history. That's an interesting progression. Uh, it's quite similar. The, your, your Roman history is quite similar to my own experience in college. And um, one of the things that kept coming up, uh, I studied Greek and, and, and Latin, the languages, and of course that includes Roman history. And so I just, I don't know, 
maybe this hasn't come up at all, but, but one of the things that, and as Art mentioned, the lexicons, one of the things that the professors kept emphasizing, anytime we come across the Greek word oinos or weenum for Latin, uh, for wine, uh, they would emphatically insist that it's always alcoholic. And uh, in fact, I even had one professor who kind of uh, uh, even brought up, you know, those religious people who say, you know, there are two kinds of wine. So I don't know, have you ever had any professor? I mean, it may have never come up, but mm -hmm. how would you, I guess you've kind of already answered the question, but mm -hmm. I'm just curious about how you would respond to that. Yeah, I also uh, had four semesters of Greek in college in my undergraduate years. Um, and so I, I uh, learned about this uh, fairly early on in my uh, college collegiate career. And uh, my professor said the same thing, that wine is always, at least in Greek literature, secular Greek literature at least, referring to uh, intoxicating wine or uh, fermented wine, however you want to put it. Um, but I think from, at least from the scriptures, as I said, I think I see a few instances, even in the ancient Hebrew, that there were times when uh, it's quite clear that they did not mean intoxicating wine. Um, as much as you may say that it always means that, it clearly from the context doesn't, doesn't mean that in the Hebrew. And I think in the Greek there are also passages that I mentioned where it is clearly not intoxicating wine. And so um, they can, I guess, uh, affirm that statement as much as they choose. But I think that there are evidences, even in secular Greek, that I found a few here and there where it looks like they may not have been talking about intoxicating wine. I suspect their whole point of reference is their own I'm sure. Pa their own pagan literature. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Brother James Nelson. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate that study. I just wanted just to make a comment is that when it comes to what we need, we serve a God that knows what we need, and he will provide it. If we would just remember the story of the Ethiopian unit, God put water in a desert for him the need for him to be baptized. And so I don't think we have to worry about uh, the Lord's uh, table and what we need, uh, what kind of uh, juice that we make. Uh, try to find God knows what we need. Just stick to the examples in the Bible. We don't have to improvise. God will provide that. Brother Michael Hernandez. Appreciate you, brother. I had a quick question, Brother David, mentioning the, uh, the pagan literature uh, in reference to wine, obviously intoxicating is what I would gather from that. Um, so the passages that come to mind, I wonder if you've researched any of this in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul says, I do not want you to drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And uh, just wondered if that had any significance in light of the historical context of y'all, your studies. Um, and also maybe a second question along that same thought from the Old Testament, biblically, um, Israel was commanded, you know, in the Levitical laws to give their, their drink offerings to the Lord, a fourth of a hen of wine and those kinds of terms. Does that have any bearing on this topic uh, in regards to intoxicating versus non-intoxicating? thought maybe you, you had come across anything that referred to that. Yeah, that's a very good question. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, if I understand it correctly, the uh, Corinthians were, uh, of course, geographically placed in a city that uh, was steeped in idolatry, of course, steeped in a pagan religion. Uh, there was a particular temple to Asclepius, if I remember correctly, the deity's name. 
Uh, and typically they would have feasts quite often, if I'm not mistaken, and the worshipers of Asclepius would invite pretty much the entire city to come and worship this deity with them. And the Corinthian brethren, it seems from what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, that they would uh, go to these feasts at the temple. They would eat of the meats that were sacrificed. They would drink of the drinks that were prepared by the worshipers. And they would reason within themselves that because I am not actually worshiping them, I can freely go and partake of this uh, food and drink. But Paul rebukes them for that practice and says, no, you cannot partake of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot have fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with, with demons. And uh, also another important point, this is a historical point, I think Gareth Reese mentions it in his commentary and maybe one of his footnotes on 1 Corinthians 10, but there is some historical evidence that even at those uh, feasts, they would actually share a common cup at times. Uh, maybe one table would share one common cup, another table would share another common cup, and usually it was intoxicating wine. Um, I'm not sure exactly if that has any bearing necessarily on uh, the kind of... Uh, uh, liquid which we should be using in the, in the Lord's Supper. But I think that is a historical point that may play into the, to the question that you were asking. Alan Bonifay, final question. Uh, just a couple of comments about things that have been said here. Um, we need to be careful about the arguments we make on the term new wine. Now, new wine is used to refer to unfermented grape juice. Isaiah 65 and 8, which you mentioned, the new wine was in the cluster. That is certainly grape juice. Mm -hmm. And typically, according to, well, all I have here is strong, but uh, it is sweet wine uh, from, a, from fresh grapes, but it was also used to uh, refer to a very sweet fermented wine. And that's how it's being used in Acts 2.13. These are not drunk with new wine, as you mm -hmm. suppose. Or these are drunk with new wine, and Peter said these are not drunk, as you suppose. Mm -hmm. So we need to be careful about that. Uh, back on the new wine and new bottles, I think that whole parable there illustrates exactly what you were saying. You put new wine in new bottles because the sealing slows down fermentation, the bottle can, can stand the minimal expansion that there might be. But if you put new wine in an old bottle that has wine in it and that is now has fermentation on the sides of the bottle and so on, that's going to speed up the process mm -hmm. and blow up the bottle. Mm -hmm. You have the microphone. Final question for Alan was what I meant by that. <clears throat> Exodus 12:39 is regarding bread, but it's the same process, I believe. Um, it says, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. So their daily bread was leavened bread, but they were leaving town in the night and they took their dough with them. And as the old King James says before, it had time to rise, if I recall. So it was their normal dough, 
but the difference was time. And is that what you're talking about with this process? I think so, yeah. Like you said, there is evidence that uh, the Romans and that even the Jews would use yeast to speed up the process. But uh, the difference, I think, is absolutely correct. The difference is the amount of time you let it sit and ferment. Yeah. Mm. So there are still places in the world where grape juice can be difficult, not impossible, but difficult to get. And we ran into that in India and yet, uh, there were grapes all over town. And it was kind of a, a duh moment for me to say, oh, well, you could just buy some grapes and squeeze it into the cup. And then I was asked the question, does it make any difference what color? And so for those of us who have communed low these many decades on only grape juice, that is red or purple, I would, and I don't know my colors very well, but I would suggest that if the occasion arises to use a grape juice other than what is normally always used, that there be some type of a warning so people aren't shocked or surprised by that. Yes, it's grape juice, and it is absolutely fruit of the vine, but we don't want to shock anybody in the Lord's Supper with what we do. So I'd, I'd say it, as a point of novelty, it probably shouldn't be something that we do. That smacks of Corinth saying we're gonna change the Lord's Supper. But as a matter of can we do this and is it fine? Yes, but we need to be wise and we need to talk about that amongst ourselves if that's something we're gonna do. But wherever anyone travels in the world, the beautiful thing is that if we can find grape juice, we don't care what color it is. Yes, Ron. Well, I just make the point, not as a novice, but I faced several situations. It wasn't a novice, it was a necessity. Yeah. And I'll guarantee you, I went and found every bottle I could find of in the town. Yeah. Brother, you've done well. Your, uh, your, your speech time didn't last long. Your question time lasted longer, and that's what I, that's what I hope. Any last words for you on your topic, please? I don't have any final uh, points of doctrine or final points of uh, evidence or anything like that, but I would just say one final time thank you to uh, those of you all assembled here and the congregation here at Grapevine for your kind uh, hosting of this series of studies and also for Brother Art, for Brother Greg, for their giving me the opportunity to speak to you all.